Hello and welcome to this APW Property Podcast. APW advises expats on buying property in the UK and today we're having a rummage through the APW inbox to answer an FAQ or frequently asked question. Callum Williamson is with me. Uh, Callum, what's today's frequently asked question? Today's frequently asked question is on the subject of mortgages and more specifically the process from uh, a to B, how do I get from the start to the finish of getting a mortgage? What do I need to do to do that? Yes, we looked at mortgages recently in a podcast, but that was answering the specific question, what effect will interest rate rises have on mortgages? And is it time to lock into a new deal, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I would say this is more, uh, that that previous podcast was probably more aimed at existing investors and people that already have mortgages and sort of know a bit more around the market, whereas this would be if you know absolutely nothing, or if you know a little bit, and you want to expand on your knowledge, then this will be the, the FAQ or the podcast session for you. And even if you already know a lot about mortgages, we might yet include a new nugget of information for you, something you didn't know. And we believe that all information is good when making big decisions, which is the reason for these podcasts and why we put them out. It's all grist to the mill, as they say. Um, by the way, do you know where the, uh, that phrase comes from, Callum? I don't know what uh, where Christopher Mill comes from. I mean, there you go. You don't know what you don't know. So I've already learned something uh, this episode. Well, grist is corn. It's the whole bit of corn that comes to the mill to be ground into flour, which is a product that you can sell to the market after going through all that grinding. It's an early definition of adding value, I suppose. But um, back to mortgages. Why do we need them? Okay, why do we need a mortgage? I guess... Um, I mean, firstly, unless you've got a, a large pot of cash, and even if you have got a large pot of cash, you know, you don't necessarily want to be using all of it. That's one of the, the great things about buying a property is is this thing called leverage or purchasing with debt, aka a mortgage. Um, you know, so you don't need to save up £100,000 or £200,000. You just need to save 20 or 30%. So, you know, Thirty to sixty thousand pounds, and then you you purchase the rest of the property with a mortgage. And if it's a buy to let or an investment, you put a tenant in there, and, and they're going to pay that mortgage off for you. So, it's one of the only asset classes that you can purchase with debt with a leverage, which makes it so. Uh, which is one of the things that makes it very attractive. Okay, so you want to buy a property. You know you will need a mortgage, but you're thinking, I'm outside the UK. How does that work? What do I do? Is that the kind of thing that people worry about? Yeah, good question. And, and this is probably the most common area that we, we hear these FAQs or misconceptions, you know, uh, one is that, first of all, you just simply can't get a mortgage whilst living overseas as an expatriate um, or an international person. The other one is that you need obscene, um, an obscene size deposit, you know, 40, 50%, which again, isn't true. I'd say perhaps a third one is that it's just very, very difficult, you know, that there's loads of paperwork, it's very stressful. So I think those are the main, the three main misconceptions. Also, you mentioned buy to let there. That's a specific kind of mortgage, isn't it? There's a difference between residential mortgages and buy to let mortgages, isn't there? Yeah, again, a very good point. Uh, I, I don't think many people know um, that there is a difference between a residential, which is when you're buying a, a home, somewhere to live in, and a buy to let is when it's an investment. So uh, a residential, you know, this article, we're going to talk more about buy to let, but residential is, as I say, when you're buying a home, it is a little bit more difficult to, to get because the lender, the bank or building society is looking at your income alone because you're the one that's going to be paying the mortgage. So you do need a higher salary or if you're, you're, you're buying with a partner, that'll help. Whereas a buy-to-let, 
they're not looking at your salary as much. Uh, they're looking more at the rental income that the property will give them and will this cover the mortgage. They put a stress test on that as well, sometimes up to 155%. I'm not sure if we've done a podcast on that, but we have got articles on it. So a buy to let is actually a little bit easier because if the, if the income from the property is up to scratch, then a bank is more willing to lend on it. Yes. Okay. Well, a couple of things to unpick there. Residential mortgages are for when you want to use the property yourself and banks or lenders will look more closely at your own income and expenses. And typically they will lend around four times single income or five times joint income if you apply as a couple. Buy to let is when you're going to rent it to tenants. Uh, it's an investment that you're making in property and not a property that you're going to use yourself. And so it's the rent that covers the mortgages and they'll be more interested in what that is and how that whether that covers the cost. Stress tests, which the bank apply to an application, are just about checking that if things change, you can still afford to be paying the mortgage. So at the figure you mentioned there, 155%, I think. If everything became 55% more expensive, say if interest rates changed, uh, would you still be able to cover the cost? And different banks and different lenders will have different stress test thresholds that they work to. And they will have also different ratios of rental income to mortgage payments costs that they work out to calculate how much they can lend. Uh, for instance, and typically again, £125 of rent coming in to cover £100 of mortgage going out. So that's a 125% ratio. Uh, all of these things are worth thinking about when you set your own goals and do your own sums before embarking on the journey of trying to buy a property. So uh, next question, paperwork. Is there a lot of it, acres of forms to fill? Yeah, sure. So this is this is one of those things that typically puts people off. You know, uh, what's, what paperwork do I need? This is going to be difficult. The bank's going to ask me for loads. But as a minimum, you know, to get started before you even approach a broker or try and get a mortgage, you should get three months pay slips, three month bank statements, proof of address and proof of ID together as a bare minimum, you know, to go with that perhaps a contract, you know, to back up the pay slips and the bank statements, uh, proof of employment, a contract. But those are the those are the four main things as a minimum you need. And as you go through the process and it develops, the bank may ask you for more information. So I was purchasing a property myself recently or still am and going through the mortgage process and they could see I had another bank account. So they said, okay, well, you know, can you give me, because I'm living overseas, they wanted to see a UK bank account and also my local bank account. So I had to supply that with them. So as a minimum, pay slips, bank statements, ID, and uh, proof of address, and then perhaps a few more supporting documents if the bank or the broker asks you for them. Yeah, we're proving your identity is a big one in these days of clamping down globally on money laundering and so on. And uh, you mentioned brokers there. They're also legally required to know their client and will want ID credentials before they approach the banks on your behalf. Uh, speaking of which, are there misconceptions around banks and lenders? Yeah, again, another another good question. <laughs> um, uh, just quickly, just to go back to the documents thing, I was chatting to a client a few days ago and, and they were saying, you know, it's been never ending on the paperwork from, that the bank is asking for. And when applying for a mortgage, it's all about creating a, you know, a clear cut image, the, the clearer and more concise image you can give, you know, which is these are my, my bank statements in this country. These are my pay slips in this country. I've got one bank account in the UK. You know, if you say to them, uh, I've got a car loan here, a car loan there, you know, bank account here, bank account there from when I was working over there. That, or it, especially as an expat, you've got bank accounts in lots of different countries. It opens up a whole uh, can of worms. So you want to try and keep it as simple as possible and then only give additional information as and when asked for. 
for it. So don't give it all at once. Yes, exactly. Keep things on a need-to-know basis. Don't overshare, as they say. Uh, but uh, lenders. Okay, sorry. So potential lenders. Uh, again, this is very common. A message we'll get a lot is, you know, I tried to uh, get a mortgage and I couldn't. And something we'll often go back to them with, you know, is who was the bank? Who was the lender? Was it a UK high street bank? And eight or nine times out of 10, they will say, yeah, well, it was when I was back for, for Christmas, I went into NetWest or HSBC because I've already got a mortgage with them. So told them I was living overseas and wanted to get a buy-to-let mortgage and they sort of laughed me out the door, which they will because um, they they get enough business from the UK and they don't need the perceived extra risk of taking on an expat client. Not that it's risky, but as far as they're concerned, they don't need the business. So the trick is, or the key is to work with people that like working with expats and there's loads of them, Skiptons, NatWest Offshore, HSBC Offshore, Al Ryan, Bank of China, um, Dudley Building Society, Saffron Building Society, Gatehouse Bank. These are all Shawbrook. These are all lenders that like lending to expats. So those are the people you need to work with. Well, it's a lot of names there, but there are a lot of lenders out there. So you can save yourself a lot of internet searching by getting specialist help, like a mortgage broker? Working with a broker. And this is often another one that people go, oh, I was the same, you know, a broker. How much is that going to cost me? But um, they're worth their weight in gold. A, a broker that knows your market and what you're looking for. You know, we were at our networking event in Singapore. It will be three weeks ago by the time this comes out. And, and Scott Mitchell, who's uh, based in Singapore and works purely with expats, was there meeting and speaking to the people that came to the event. And that's what he specializes in is getting mortgages for expats in Singapore. So he knows exactly who to approach, how to approach them and how to put the package together that the lender will like to see. So working with a broker and someone that specializes in that area is worth it. You pay a broker fee of 200 to 800 pounds, depending, but it is well worth it because if you keep getting knocked back on the mortgages, it's going to cost you more. So get a good broker and um, do it right the first time. Yes, a good broker should be a huge help, not just through the application process, but also through navigating what is a very complex market. New deals are coming on the market from lenders all the time with different rates of interest. Sometimes these are fixed funds, so when they've lent out all the money at that rate, it, that's it, the deal's gone. Uh, good brokers will have their eye on the market and their ear to the ground and know who is lending and also who is likely to lend to someone in your own individual circumstance. How do you get in touch with a broker? Where where do you look? Uh, how do you get in touch with a broker? Well, I mean, if you're listening to this and you're in Asia, you can get in touch with us and we'll put you in touch with one of the brokers we use. But I mean, if you don't want to do that, then just a simple, you know, a simple Google search, uh, expat brokers in, in Singapore or expat brokers Asia or, you know, something like that. And you'll find, you know, there are specialist companies doing it. But I mean, if you're listening to this, then the simple way would be to just ask us and we can we can make the the connection and it's it's free of charge to speak to a mortgage broker. You know, they're only going to charge you if and when they get a mortgage for you and it goes ahead. So don't be shy to, to use a bit of their time. Okay, so you found a broker, proved who you are, found the right bank. Uh, let's move to the next bit, getting a decision in principle. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. So again, it's another uh, sort of important facet of the mortgage process. A decision in principle is basically where you found a property or you sort of know what you're looking for. Okay, I'm looking at a £150,000 property. I've got £45,000 deposit. I need a £105,000 mortgage. You've got all your documents together and the bank goes, okay, 
in principle, based on your earnings, based on the income from the property, based on what we've seen, we're happy to, to give you a mortgage offer in principle, a decision in principle. And that will be valid for three months normally. And that then is a great tool to take into the market and start offering on properties. You know, if you go and offer on a property and you can say to the vendor, look, I've got a, here's my bank statement. Here's my proof of deposit. Here's my proof of uh, decision in principle. Here's a passport or whatever. Then your offer is going to be, uh, is going to carry much more weight than someone that's just offering without any of these things in place. So a decision in principle is a very useful thing to have because it means you can, you can offer and people know that you're serious and you're offering with intent. Yes, if you can prove your deposit and you have your decision in principle, you're a buyer with the funds up to the sum of the two, which is a handy tool to have when you start looking for the property which is right for you. So now you need to find the specific property to move the process on and have your offer accepted. Is that right? Yeah, yeah you, you do. Um, if you want to then take it to the mortgage offer stage, um, you will need to have a specific property because the bank will then... Um, they will send a, a value around there to do a valuation on the property and and um and it's still you know it's one last stumbling block if you're um if you're buying in a hot market or you're buying in the wrong place or you're buying sort of overinflated um new builds and you haven't done your research and you just sort of pay the asking price then sometimes it can be overinflated and um a bank can downvalue the property for example which means you may need to put up the difference yourself so yeah, so they'll more more often than not they'll value it at what it's been asking for, obviously because of market forces, supply and demand. That's why it's priced that way. But um, they'll do evaluation and then they come back and say, yes, this is what the property is valued at. So we're happy to lend on these terms, and then you get a official mortgage offer from the bank, which is valid then for three to six months, depending on your situation and the lender. Valuations are done for the banks by professional values who are on the bank's list and are recognised by that lender. So you can't have your mate look at it to tell you what it's worth, nor is it good enough just to have an estate agent's letter valuing a house or an apartment. Um, Valuations, even drive-by ones, which are more common these days, are done by approved valuers and are to reassure the bank about the risk is the house worth what they're lending to it. Um, it's worth pointing out that valuations are different from condition surveys, which a chartered surveyor would do for you. Uh, they're an extra thing that you would have to ask the surveyor to do if you want to reassure yourself about the property and that it's not going to fall down the day after you buy it and so on. So valuations are for the bank and uh, condition surveys would be for you and your purposes. What about interest rates? Should you fix what are the deals out there? How, how do you know you're on the best one? Yeah, so you'll get that with a broker. I mean, we uh, we spoke about it a few weeks ago, didn't we? Current rates. Um, I think it's important to look at, um, yeah, if you're, I think, a first-time buyer, residential property and or buy-to-let, those are the, or, or remortgage, those would be the four sort of different category of mortgage. I think a first-time buyer is going to be slightly higher rate. You, you know, you're probably looking at realistically four to four to five percent especially if it's a buy to let so first time buyer and buy to let that's what you'd be looking at if it's a residential you know you can still get two two to three percent and if you're remortgaging i guess it depends on your bank and what your current rate is and and how much you've got left to pay off but uh on a remortgage stick it in the middle and say around three percent but because we're talking about buy to let and this is buy to let mortgages i would say if you're factoring rates of 3.5 up to five then you can't really go wrong with that at the moment okay so you get your paperwork in order you find a broker you get your decision in principle 
You find a property, negotiate the price based on your deposit money and the decision in principle, then the bank will get a valuation done, give you the formal offer, and you're good to go to the next stage, which is all the legals, the transfer of funds, the transfer of the title deeds of the property, and ultimately getting the keys. Um, we'll look at all that in a future episode. Um, but all of this is something that you've been through yourself personally. Listeners can be comforted that you're talking from your own personal recent experience. That's correct. Yeah. So I've been went through this whole process myself. It started in February this year because... Um, buying off plan you know and it was okay well it's going to complete in in april so let's get the mortgage shorted and covid and and sort of um building materials and the cost of things going up and delays and it's still still ongoing but we're getting close and um yeah i've had one extension which was apparently supposed to be the very last extension no more so it was six months and that was february to august and then they gave me till the end of september and now it's looking like it's going to complete end of September, early October. So they've given me until the middle of October, but this is all stuff my broker has done for me, you know, because they've, uh, you know, I've been keeping them in the loop about what's going on with the build and they'll go and speak to the lender and do all of this behind my back and come back and say, okay, well, we've got you an extension. So it's worth, yeah, it's worth dealing with a broker and all of everything we've just discussed there is some firsthand experience in the past six months. So um, it's about as up to date as you can get. Thank you very much. That's all we have time for today. Next week, it's market mosey time, and we will look back at September's significant property market events. Until then, it's goodbye from Callum. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. My name's Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.